Good morning, folks, and thank you for tuning in to the Global Current, the CN Hall School of Diplomacy and International Relations podcast. Each week, we break down a new topic in global affairs and have a conversation with students to analyze different perspectives. This is your host, Valentino de Jarena. This week, we'll be breaking down the ongoing discussions and negotiations around the Iran nuclear deal. But before we get into this week's topic, our news briefer, Shweta Partasarathi, will update us on the news headlines from around the globe. Germany announced that travelers from France's northeastern Moselle region will face additional restrictions because of the high rate of variant coronavirus cases. The weekly rate of new infections in Moselle is well above the average for France's, France's eastern region and the national average. Hong Kong police detained 47 pro-democracy protesters last week. They were charged with conspiracy to commit subversion under the city's national security law. This move, along with a string of arrests and pro- prosecutions, is part of a crackdown on Hong Kong's pro-democracy movement. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken issued a statement condemning atrocities happening in Ethiopia's Tigray region. He said, quote, we strongly condemn the killings, forced removals and displacements, sexual assaults and other extremely serious human rights violations and abuses by several parties that multiple organizations have reported in Tigray. We are also deeply concerned by the worsening humanitarian crisis. Over 200 prisoners are on the run in Haiti after escaping from a jail near the capital, Port-au-Prince. 25 people, including the prison director, died following the Thursday's mass escape from the Croix de Bouquet prison, according to authorities. Victims included bystanders who were caught up in the violence. A UN humanitarian agency warned that more than 16 million people in Yemen could go hungry this year. The UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs said the risk of widespread famine in Yemen has, quote, never been more acute. The years-long conflict, economic decline, and institutional collapse has created enormous humanitarian needs in all sectors. Former French President Nicolas Sarkozy was sentenced to three years in prison on charges of corruption and influence peddling. Sarkozy was found guilty of trying to illegally obtain information about an investigation into his own campaign finances. In an interview following his sentencing, Sarkozy denied the accusation and claimed the judges had been unfair. I sat in the chair that was in front of these two ladies, judges. Without even asking me a single question, they gave me three reasons for indictment before I had responded to anything. India has expanded its COVID vaccination efforts after a recent increase in cases nationwide. Healthcare and other frontline workers were already eligible, but now eligibility is expanded to people older than 60 and anyone older than 45 with pre-existing medical conditions. The vaccines are being given for free at public hospitals and will be sold to private hospitals at a fixed price of 250 rupees per shot. Prime Minister Narendra Modi was among the first to be vaccinated and tweeted afterward, quote, together, let's make India COVID-19 free. The Iran nuclear deal, also known as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, started during the Obama administration. It is an agreement between Iran, the United States, and other powers, including the UK, France, Russia, China, and Germany, to halt Iran's pursuit of nuclear weapons. In return, the other countries would lift nuclear-related sanctions and weapons embargoes on Iran. The deal was signed in 2015 and was scheduled to last through 2030. In 2018, the Trump administration formally withdrew the deal and imposed sanctions on Iran. Now, under the Biden administration, there has been mixed discussions about how to move forward with a new nuclear deal. This week, we are keeping it in current with two of our own CN Hall students, 
Our first analyst is Liam Brooker Casey, who will be covering the domestic perspective. Welcome, Liam. Hi, Valentina. Thanks for having me. No problem. Our second analyst covering the international perspective is Mark Gorman. Hi, Mark. Hi, Val. Um, but I want to know why were there sanctions on Iran in the first place before this whole deal was put into the, into place? Basically, um, Iran has been uh, developing um, nuclear weapons, or at least um, setting the groundwork to do so, um, even before the Iranian Revolution um, under the Shah. Um, the uh, Iranian uh, pursuit of nuclear weapons has uh, clearly, as they do not have uh, functioning warheads, um, hasn't ever gotten to the point of imminent threat. But um, in the, uh, I believe, the early 2000s, um, when um, the United States was made aware that Iran was pursuing um, enrichment um, of uranium, the uh, in an international community um, under the leadership of the United States um, further sanctioned Iran um, for nuclear weapons. But um, plenty of sanctions had already been imposed on Iran. And why does Iran feel the need to develop these nuclear-related materials? So I think it's important to consider um, Iran's location and its history. I mean, the 1979 Iranian Revolution was to overthrow the Shah, which was a U.S.-backed government in Iran. And, you know, so they've always had a feeling of insecurity in relation to the U.S. and felt that a nuclear weapon would help provide that kind of security against a nuclear power like the U.S. or in more recent times, Israel. Um, I think it's also important to note that Iran has been looking to expand its influence in the Middle East, and having a nuclear weapon also provides uh, a great incentive to work with Iran. That is very interesting. Okay. I do see um, how having these type of nuclear weapons can greatly increase your influence. You know, we know, we know about the nuclear dilemma and how you know, we all kind of want these weapons to kind of say, hey, I have it, don't mess with me. So do we believe that they really just want the clout or are they capable of using it? Um, I, I think that uh, nuclear weapons or um, more broadly, uh, nuclear development uh, for Iran um, serves uh, a couple purposes. Um, number one, it serves as um, an energy provider. Uh, that might be what Iran generally will claim um, to say all of their nuclear uh, capabilities are for. Um, that's generally believed to be not quite true. Obviously, it's not only for um, energy purposes, but um, you have to remember that um, these sanctions have been um, quite burdensome to the Iranian economy. Um, and uh, it can serve that purpose. But additionally, uh, nuclear weapons um, have been proven clearly to provide a certain level of insurance for a nation that um, they're much less likely to ever be invaded. Um, it's just not something that um, is 
really likely to happen at all um, if a nation has nuclear weapons. Um, that being said, um, the uh, Iranian regime is faced with the additional opportunity given to them by having um, Iranian develop, uh, nuclear development um, that these the threat of their further uh, development of nuclear capabilities is a um, an excellent source of leverage um, in the international community, but also a um, an excellent source of burden as um, it's a cause for a great deal of sanctions. If I may jump in here also, and sorry, Liam, if I'm kind of stepping in your area a bit here by adding this on, but um, I think it's also important to note that a lot of people, at least in the U.S., talk about the fear of Iran using a nuclear weapon. But I do think it's important to note that because the people that they would theoretically use a nuclear weapon on already have nuclear weapons and have them in much larger numbers than Iran, I don't see them actually pushing that button and trying to do that. Wow, okay, yeah, I definitely agree. Um, so let's talk more about this little bit of how the deal started. What motivated Obama to start this deal? Liam, if you wanna go for it. Um, sure, um, I suppose so. Uh, Clearly, you had under um, Ahmadinejad, for example, um, a pretty um, bluster uh, or a, a leader with a lot of bluster, um, a lot of bravado and um, chest thumping um, about nuclear weapons and anti-American sentiment. Um, now, some of that obviously is for show, but um, clearly Iran has um, under the Islamic Republic, Iran has and currently does um oppose generally uh, U.S. interests in the Middle East. Um, and uh, the international community as well um, doesn't generally um, want nuclear proliferation. Um, if uh, a, a, an additional nuclear power can be avoided, um, generally uh, the international community will work to uh, see that um, an additional country doesn't gain uh, nuclear weapons. So with the uh, uh, the Obama administration, and I, I'm sure Mark probably um, has more expertise on this, but um, brought Iran to the table because of how um, Iran was willing to do so because of how crippling these sanctions were. Um, and uh, it really became a pretty key piece of um, policy for the Obama administration. And uh, to go off what Liam said, was saying um, uh, has, the current Iranian president, Hassan Rouhani, was elected in 2013, two years before the nuclear deal was signed. And his whole thing was opening negotiations with the West, trying to kind of moderate Iran's position vis-a-vis uh, -vis the U.S. and other powers with the idea that if you negotiate with these nations, then perhaps... Uh, there can be a compromise that can be found. And I think under the Obama administration, the logic was, well, if we can incentivize them to further negotiate and prevent them from getting a nuclear weapon at the same time, uh, that would be a win-win for us. And, you know, I mean, with what the UN has shown since, it did look like the deal was working in that regard. Uh, 
As for the other powers, I know that uh, I can say that China and Russia have generally favored Iran some, so it makes sense that they would want to jump in on this deal as removing sanctions would be beneficial to Iran. And for many of the, for the other people who signed the deal, Germany, France, and the UK, um, they've generally had a softer stance on Iran than the US has. And for a lot of businesses in these European countries, they saw an investment opportunity that could potentially uh, benefit Europe. And that's part of the reason why these nations also wanted to get in on this deal. Also under, I think we saw um, uh, transitioning from the uh, Bush administration, which um, was obviously very hawkish um, in um, launching invasions in Afghanistan and Iraq um, with Bush's famous um, axis of evil uh, speech, um, very uh, pointedly saying that we are um, an adversary of Iran. Um, I think um, the Obama administration clearly um, not in any super um, complete 180 sense um, of change, but definitely um, began to lean in the direction of normalization um, with certain traditional adversaries or cold relations. Uh, another example would be a normalization of um, diplomacy with uh, Cuba um, is one that sticks out in my mind. Um, and so I think that the Iranian uh, deal kind of is a part of that. So I'm glad to see that all these countries basically got together and said, listen, we all benefit from this, whether it's economically, you know, um, helping Iran globalize and keep other countries safe by not allowing them to develop more nuclear weapons. So that's definitely a good reason to sit down and talk about this. But what conditions surrounded this deal? Is there any specific rules that they cannot break in order to make this work for the long run, which was supposed to be for 2030, I believe? My understanding of the deal is that each nation pledged to a certain agreement. The U.S. would release certain sanctions. Uh, one of the things that happened when the U.S. originally sanctioned Iran back in 79 was that there was a bunch of Iranian uh, government money in the U.S. that the U.S. confiscated when the Iranian revolution happened. And so the U.S. agreed to repay that money back to Iran and that uh, in exchange, Iran would allow the IAEA access to its nuclear facilities and would promise to keep uranium enrichment under a certain level. And the level was determined to be about a year's worth of enrichment away from being capable of developed into a bomb. The idea being that if Iran were to renege, it would take them a while before they could ever actually develop a bomb. And there was also a clause in the bill that would allow for negotiations if there were disputes, if someone had uh, an issue with a certain part of the bill or a certain part of the deal, at some point they could invoke that clause and the various parties would come to the table and talk it out. Kind of build on that. I think one of the, um, regardless of whether um, you would interpret uh, these concerns as being valid or not, um, but I think the detractors of the JCPOA um, objected to um, 
the deal not um, reining in enough of Iran of Iran's capabilities. Um, I know that uh, Israel and Saudi Arabia, for example, um, would have wanted uh, ballistic missiles to have been limited, and that was not part of the framework. Of course, um, nuclear capabilities were going to be limited, but um, again, uh, ballistic missiles and other sorts of military capabilities under Iran were not explicitly um, limited under the JCPOA. I want to talk a little bit more about why the Trump administration pulled out of this deal and how did the relationship between the U.S. and Iran change after the withdrawal? So uh, I guess I'll jump in here. Um, from an international perspective, I mean, it's not a secret that uh, Donald Trump had close ties and still does have close ties to Saudi Arabia and to Israel, two nations that were opposed to the nuclear deal. And so I think there is some influence there in terms of showing support for your allies. There are some other thoughts I have, but that's kind of more in Liam's. So if Liam wants to jump in and kind of address more the domestic side of it. Um, yeah, I think um, clearly Iran, the JCPOA wasn't going to um, make the United States and Iran allies. That was that it definitely would not accomplish that. And that wasn't necessarily the intention. Um, um, say the Trump administration had not withdrawn the U.S. from the JCPOA. Um, Iran would still be funding um, Hezbollah and um, its other affiliates um, throughout the Middle East to extend its um, influence. Um, so long as no major regime change happens or anything like that. Um, and, and I think that's the objection that a lot of the um, detractors of the bill in the, of the uh, deal in the United States and in Israel um, and Saudi Arabia, like Mark said, um, tended to object to the deal not going hard enough. Um, and I, I think that's part of the um, the reasons for why uh, the Trump administration was uh, more hawkish on this. Can you tell me what was kind of the domestic reaction of the government of Iran when everything happened and what happened to their citizens? How did it affect kind of their economy, politics? So um, the uh, withdrawal from the JCPOA um, definitely, um, I, I think, severely uh, damaged um, the United States-Iranian um, um, relationship. Not to say that it was anything super warm and friendly beforehand. Um, but uh, quite understandably, Iran, because uh, not only was it a withdrawal from the deal, of course, um, the United States reimposed the sanctions that Iran had negotiated um, to be lifted. Um, now, uh, the there was talk that the uh, European uh, members would try to mitigate the um, American uh, sanctions on, on Iran so that it would um, adhere to the rules. But uh, my understanding is that there just was not enough economic power to really to really nullify the impact that the United States had on Iran's economy. Um, it severely uh, impacted Iran's economy. I think in uh, late 2019, um, we had the biggest or Iran had the biggest protests, the most and I believe the most violent protests since the Iranian Revolution. Um, they had to they en ended up implementing 
a six-day um, entire media uh, blackout um, where they went to every single uh, internet service provider in the country and had them turn off all internet supplies um, because of the violence that was carried out against protesters. Um, some estimates are that um, 1,500 people were killed. There were reports that um, the Iranian regime went uh, to family members of protesters to intimidate them to keep quiet. Um, and that's not something that a regime that is very confident in its position does. Um, I think clearly the, the, the sanctions are bringing um, Iran to its knees in a lot of ways. And um, the citizens are definitely feeling that. And they're making that um, quite apparent to the regime. I think it's also important to note that uh, the impact has led to a rise in popularity again among hardliners, because the view among many Iranians is that the United States can't be trusted because they negotiated in good faith with the U.S. And the U.S. made this deal. And then as soon as the new president came in, he just scrapped the entire thing and threw on a bunch of sanctions, uh, blocked who they could trade oil with, blocked medicine from entering the country and a bunch of other stuff. And now they're hurting because they trusted the U.S. to do something that the U.S. ended up uh, backtracking on. I think that's important because Iran has an election coming up in June. And Rouhani is not looking very good in the polls. It looks like a hardliner is likely to win. And if a hardliner wins, uh, they're going to be much less inclined to negotiate with the United States and other nations in the future. Um, I will say, just if I can uh, continue, um, I, I might be a little bit more optimistic than Mark. Um, I don't want to downplay the um, immense damage that the withdrawal from the JCPOA did. Um, I think clearly the um, right now, and obviously this is a, a developing story, but um, Ron right now is um, signaling that they won't come to the table until the United States lifts sanctions, um, or at least the uh, nuclear-related sanctions, which obviously um, under the Obama administration, those weren't lifted until um, Iran came to the table. But um, right now, uh, the leader, uh, in, it's my understanding that right now the leader in the polls is uh, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, the uh, previous uh, president, um, who during his time um, in office was um, pretty hawkish and uh, very publicly outspoken against the United States. Um, but it seems like uh, his stance towards the United States, at least so far as um, nuclear uh, talks are concerned, may have softened. Um, the problem is that he was a very populist leader. He did, he was popular um, among Iranian people, um, but that's part of the immense uh, deficit spending that was undertaken um, to do that uh, amount of um, popular, uh, populist um, policies that made him so popular. So the Ayatollah may, uh, the Ayatollah Khomeini um, may not um, permit him to run. Um, uh, ultimately, the supreme leader um, can decide who can or cannot run for office. Um, if he is not approved, um, Ahmadinejad will just not be able to run um, for the president of Iran. That's really interesting. I mean, you know, it seems like their government is just put in a very hard spot because obviously these sanctions are crushing them and you know but at the same time it seems like 
they feel betrayed and they don't want to maybe get back into a deal that might be broken yet again. And if they're too dependent on the U.S. again, you know, and things go bad, it could be even worse, maybe. Um, how do we see Joe Biden handling this and the future with his administration? It looks like Joe Biden's kind of taking, I almost want to say a middle position between Obama and Trump. You know, he's saying that he's willing to come back to the table, but only if Iran uh, scales back their nuclear development first. And meanwhile, he's out there uh, bombing Iranian-backed militias and uh, such in Syria, which I think really does send mixed messages and I think disincentivizes Iran from even wanting to negotiate with the U.S., Personally, you know, that that's a personal opinion of mine. Um, I, I will say that um, I, I definitely uh, Joe Biden doesn't seem to be um, begging uh, Iran to come to the table. Um, uh, but I, I don't think Obama was either. Clearly, there was no sort of conciliatory tone or any sort of um, level of willing to be play nice. Um, and I think ultimately the United States doesn't have to. Um, even among hardliners in Iran, um, the support um, for the JCPOA or rejoining the nuclear deal is fairly popular. Um, it's widely popular among reformers um, and even among the um, more strict um, conservative uh, principalists, um, there's, they're pl- pretty split. Um, Part of the reason that I'm I'm optimistic personally uh, that Iran will come to the table, although it may take a while, um, it may even take um, until the next presidency, which will further prolong it because of um, having to get new diplomats in place and everything. But um, ultimately, I, I just I don't see how Iran can afford to not come to the table sooner or later. Um, they're going to have to um, because of the uh, immense weight. That United that the United States has in terms of global trade and glo- uh, global diplomacy. Let's step back and look at it from more of a U.S. perspective because we know Iran should kind of want to re-enter this deal for the sake of their economy, their people, uh, overall quality of life. But should the U.S. re-enter? Does it really matter? Like, should it matter to them? Uh, I think um, it does matter if you care about whether Iran gets nuclear weapons or not. I think if your desire is to ensure Iran doesn't, then re-entering it is kind of the best course of action to ensure that happens. If you don't care so much about whether Iran gets nuclear weapons or not, then I think it really is up to the president as to whether he really wants to or not. And and I guess just to put this in there too, um, why you know why can't these other bigger powers, well not bigger powers, excuse me, just these other powers just deal with it? Why does it have to be like the U.S.? Well, I just think that's because um, they uh, alone. Um, I mean, I still believe that. Or I think it's still true that the United States is the um, largest economy. That's not to say that. Um, it will always be the deciding factor in every single um, exchange, but um, it makes it very hard. I, I think, like I said earlier, that there was um, the political will 
um, in the uh, EU to um, try to make up for um, the United States uh, impact when it withdrew um, from the deal. But the uh, EU just wasn't able to uh, make up for that fact. Um, and I, neither were the other powers involved. Um, obviously, Iran, and, uh, excuse me, uh, Russia and China are, um, while not maybe formal allies, are, are more sympathetic to Iran um, than certainly than the EU and certainly than um, the United States. Um, but they just don't necessarily wield. You, you really do in this um, context need a multilateral agreement, it seems. I think, at least from the European perspective, there's also this situation of not wanting to do too much to upset the United States. They don't want to, you know, I mean, they probably could force the United States to reenter the agreement if they flout some of the sanctions that the U.S. had put on Iran, but they don't want to do something that would upset the United States too much, so they don't want to kind of cross a line that might alienate them from American deals. All right, guys, thank you so much for this awesome conversation because that's all the time we have today. I'm going to wrap it up here. Thank you, Liam. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Val. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for updates on upcoming shows. This show could not be made possible without our crew, executive producer Jared Dang, assistant producers Joaquin Matamas and Jasmine DeLeon, technical producer Brittany Segura, and assistant technical producer Jason Marieski. I'm your host, Valentina Orejarena, and I thank you for tuning in. The Global Current is brought to you by the School of Diplomacy and International Relations at Seen Hall University. As always, keep it in current with us and catch us on the waves next Sunday at 7.30 a.m. Eastern Time on 89.5 FM WSOU.